Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Outsmarting Antisemitism. This is our third session, three out of four. And boy, do we have a compelling conversation tonight. First, I want to open with birthday wishes to my mom. Happy birthday. Lots of blessings, lots of good wishes, and lots of good stuff. It's a special day, so happy birthday. All right, as, as always, I want to extend... A very special thank you to our core sponsors. So for this course, the sponsorship for this course, we have Dr. Joy Maxey, Dr. Alex and Laura Doman, and Howard Feinstein. Thank you so much for your sponsorship for the course. It is greatly appreciated. Okay, on to today's lesson. They tell a story about terrorists who have taken three captives. There are three captives that are being held by the terrorists, and the terrorists give, terrorists give each of these captives one final wish. One of them, one of the captives, is a CNN reporter from the U.S., and the reporter says, I'm, 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 an, Amer I'm an American. As my final wish, I'd like a burger and fries. Traditional American fare. And the terrorists grant him his wish. Well, the second captive is a BBC reporter. And the BBC reporter, being true to journalism, says, I would like permission to record everything that happens. On my recorder, record the audio of everything that happens until the final moments. As a journalist, this is what I'd like to do, and the terrorists grant that request. The final captive is an Israeli soldier, an Israeli commando. And his final request, he says, the Israeli says to the terrorist, he says, I want you to come over to me and kick me really hard. Okay? So the terrorists head over to him and give him a zets, give him a kick, and he's in pain. He rolls on the floor, he's rolling around in agony, and as he's on the floor, he pulls out a small pistol from his sock, and he begins... Shooting the terrorists and neutralizing, let's just keep it family friendly, neutralizing the danger. And the terrorists are gone. And incredibly, incredibly, the terrorists, the threat is gone and they're all saved. He unties, the, the, the Israeli officer unties the, the CNN reporter, the BBC reporter, and they say to him, thank you very much, but let me ask you a question. If you had a pistol the whole time, why didn't you shoot them right away? So the Israeli says, what? And then you would report that I was the aggressor? Okay. All right. I'm assuming that y'all got it, and that's okay. Good. All right. So you had to kick him to, okay, I don't want to spell it out. So today we're going to address a very important topic, and that is Israel-directed anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism that takes the form of, that, that targets Israel. Now, if you pay attention to any amount of international news, chances are that before long, you're going to encounter something about Israel. And more often than not, it seems, the reports out of Israel are a bit ugly and a bit vilifying. In fact, if you go by the news, you might think that Israel is the worst country in the world sometimes. The most horrible violators of human rights, an apartheid state, 
occupiers, terrorists, deserving of boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, a.k.a. BDS. All too often, this is the image of Israel as portrayed in our society, and it's not just the media. The United Nations has called out and condemned Israel more than any other nation, other, any other country on the planet. And not only is Israel criticized and, and, and condemned, but its very legitimacy as a state, as a nation, is all too often called into question, put up for discussion. Can you imagine? The one Jewish state on earth happens to be the one that seems to be the most vilified on earth. So is this some wild coincidence? Is it some like random coincidence? Or is perhaps there's something, perhaps is there something a little bit more nefarious at play here? So in today's session, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at all of this and much more and ask some very tough questions, including, is anti-Israel bias anti-Semitic? Does criticizing Israel necessarily make one an anti-Semite? Is there a line between a valid criticism of Israel and straight up Jewish directed hate? Why are there so many Jews that are joining anti-Israel causes? And finally, what can we do about all of this right now? These are the questions, these are the themes that we will be, that we will be exploring in today's session. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to explore these questions, to explore these topics with you today. These are very important topics, and I'm excited about the prospect of perhaps coming up with some ideas and, uh, and some conclusions together. So we have a lot to explore. Let's jump in and let's begin. Okay, so I want to begin with a brilliant observation. Um, I would say a classic, at this point, it's a classic observation and brilliant from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. It's something that I've mentioned multiple times so far in this series. And I said that later on, I've said in previous classes, later on at some point we'll get to it. Well, now is where we get to it. So I meant, and, and, but I'll just tell you what it is. So we, I've mentioned before that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs compares or describes anti-Semitism as a virus. What's the significance of anti-Semitism being a virus? So a virus, when a virus hits a wall, it doesn't give up. It doesn't say, oh, I guess we're done here. No, a virus mutates. A virus hits a wall and it just changes its colors. It mutates and then keeps on going. So anti-Semitism, as Rabbi Sachs explains, is like a virus in that this pandemic, if you will, constantly mutates. And Rabbi Sachs describes the pandemic of anti-Semitism as having three waves. So let's do this inside. Let's read this inside. All right, I'm going to share my screen. At this point, you should all have books. If you don't have a book, you can message me after the class, send me an email or text message or call me after the class and let me know. But let's, uh, let's jump into this conversation. We're going to jump in on the, sorry, in the book, or I'm going to put the, the, the page online, uh, online as well. It's page 84 in your textbooks. Let's see if I can share this. Why is it not coming up? Here it is. Okay, great. A mutating virus. All right, let's, um, 
Let's ask Adina Malka. If you don't mind jumping in on this, from Rabbi Sachs, text number one, where he describes the virus of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is not an ideology, a coherent set of beliefs. It is, in fact, an endless stream of contradictions. The best way of understanding it is to see it as a virus. Viruses attack the human body, but the body itself has an immensely sophisticated defense, the human immune system. How then do viruses survive and flourish? By mutating, anti-Semitism mutates, and in doing so, defeats the immune system set up by cultures to protect themselves against hatred. Most people at most times feel a residual guilt at hating the innocent. Therefore, anti-Semitism... Oops. Ah, here we go. Therefore, anti-Semitism has always had to fight legitimation in the most prestigious source of authority at any given time. In the first centuries of the Common Era, and again in the Middle Ages, this was religion. This is why Judophobia took the form of religious doctrine. In the 19th century, religion had, had lost prestige, and the supreme authority was now science. Racial anti-Semitism was duly based on two pseudosciences. Social Darwinism, the idea that in society as in nature, the strong survive by eliminating the weak, and the so-called scientific study of race. By the late 20th century, science had lost its prestige, having given us the power to destroy life on Earth. Today, the supreme source of legitimacy is human rights. That is why Jews of the Jewish state are accused of the five primal sins against human rights. Racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, attempted genocide, and crimes against humanity. All right, thank you for this. Thank you for reading this. This is uh, Rabbi Sachs' um, thesis explaining the, the, how anti-Semitism is a virus. I want to turn to you, all of you. It's an, open, it's an open question, open mic. You can unmute yourself and jump in. What do you think about this, uh, this thesis from Rabbi Sachs? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you want to comment on it? Jump in. I think it's just a, a very uh, timely uh, way of explaining, you know, anti-Semitism, like, you know, we're in the virus and how it mutates. And right. Anti-Semitism mutates throughout the centuries. And, uh, you know, I just I think it's perfect. I think it's timely. Okay. Okay, good. Tom. He wrote this in 2007. He lived till about uh, a year ago, November 7th. I wonder if over time he would have modified it, uh, particularly given the COVID experience. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Okay, good. What else? What else did you notice about this text? What do you like? What, what perhaps do you want to tweak in your own understanding? There's no right or wrong uh, answer over here. It's just an open, open conversation. Okay. All right. If you have any, anyone has thoughts, jump in at any point in time, but let's, uh, let's continue. So just to explain what Rabbi Sachs is writing. So he says, essentially, he, he kind of uh, fits anti classic anti-Semitism into three waves of this virus. 
Wave number one is what we might call religious anti-Semitism. That's where hatred of Jews is predicated or at least blamed on Jews being on the wrong side of religion. Wave number two is racial anti-Semitism, where Jews are on the wrong side of race. And wave three of anti-Semitism, which he's saying is the current wave, again, he wrote this a few years ago, is human rights anti-Semitism, and of course, Jews, once again, are on the wrong side of human rights. So in each era, whether it's the era of religious anti-Semitism, racial anti-Semitism, or human rights anti-Semitism, Jews just happen to be on the wrong side of the issue. We're the wrong religion. Just go ask the Christians and the Muslims. We're the wrong religion. We are the wrong race. Just ask the Germans. And today, we're on the wrong side of the human rights issue. Just ask those who slam Israel as being the very worst nation ever vis-a-vis human rights. This is the narrative that has anti-Semitism morphing throughout the ages and adopting, as Rabbi Sachs explains, adopting the most prestigious authority of the time as support for the anti-Semitic sentiment. What emerges then, what emerges is that the full-on attack against Israel, painting it as the worst of the worst, an apartheid state, the genocidal state seeking to oppress innocent people, etc., is simply, again, according to this reading, is simply the same old anti-Semitism. It's the same old Jewish hatred with a shiny new veneer, but inside, same stuff. So that's, that's Rabbi Sachs' perspective. That's his angle on it. Now, you might be thinking this, I know I'm thinking this, and I'll just share it. You might be thinking, wait, does that mean that all criticism of Israel is necessarily anti-Semitic? Does that mean that no one can legitimately criticize Israel or any of its policies or any of its politicians, perhaps? That doesn't seem fair. In other words, is Rabbi Sachs really submitting, is he really suggesting, right, that any criticism of Israel, if you call out Israel saying, hey, I don't agree with this policy, this seems unfair to others, that that necessarily means anti-Semitism? Is it an automatic or is it perhaps a little bit more nuanced? So I think it would be reasonable to say that there might be valid criticisms of Israel, right? There might be a point where there's a valid criticism and another point where that Criticism becomes an anti-Semitic attack, but if that's the case, where do you draw the line and who really determines where that line gets drawn? So I'm glad that you asked because I'd like to offer a few ideas about where to draw that line between valid criticism and anti-Semitism. So let's explore this topic and more specifically the distinction between the the two offerings. And one way we could do this is by asking a question, kind of like an informal poll by raise of hand. And the informal poll, first question would be, do you support Israel? And I know when it comes to polls, always a certain amount of people will not raise their hand just because who can bother. But if we ask the question, who supports Israel? I would imagine most hands are meaning to go up. Okay, good, good, good. I see a bunch. Oh, oh, look at that. Okay, it worked, it worked. Lots of hands going up. Okay. But if I asked you, second question, Do you think that everything Israel has done, all the policies, all the leadership, 
that everything that's done has been perfect, would you raise your hand? Or would you say, maybe not? Okay, so good. Which tells us, which tells us exactly, so you're supporting my, my theory, which is that we can reasonably suggest that one could be a supporter of Israel and a supporter of Jews, not an anti-Semite, and at the same time be somewhat critical of Israel. And again, the criticism, the specific criticism, could run the range of a policy, um, politics, the nature of politics, a politician in Israel, corruption, etc. We don't. I don't know if we have to get into the details, but it can it can run a, a pretty broad range of of potential critiques against Israel. But then the question is: So then, what's Rabbi Sachs saying? When does it become? When does it become anti-Semitism? So again, the first thing I want to do is normalize the idea of the possibility of criticizing Israel. It's not like any criticism means, oh, Jewish hate. I think, we, I think it's healthy for us, for, when I say us, I mean it's healthy for Jews to take a step back from calling out everything as anti-Semitism. I don't think that does anybody any favors. Remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? Yeah? Remember that one? Okay, so good. So let's, let's be... Let's ease off of the trigger for a moment on, the, on, on calling out anti-Semitism, even as it's important to do so. Let, let's understand that not everyone that says, hey, maybe Israel should consider tweaking that, and I don't think that's, that doesn't necessarily mean Jew hater, Jew killer. That's not, that's not necessarily the synonymous. You could be a supporter of the Jewish state, a supporter of, Jew, of the Jewish people, and still feel that Israel is not perfect. That's absolutely legitimate. What's not legitimate and so here, let's talk about where that line is. What's not legitimate, I would, I would suggest tonight, is when you have anti-Jewish hate dressed up as Israel criticism. That's what anti-Semitism is. Anti-Semitism in this context is when you're targeting Jews, but you're dressing it up under the guise of, oh, anti-Israel sentiment. But then, of course, how do you differentiate between legitimate legitimate criticism of Israel and straight-up anti-Semitic hate. For this, I would like to suggest that we learn something together, that we learn an ancient Jewish text together. This text that we're about to learn, which, if you have a book, is text number two. This comes from the Midrash. The Midrash dates back 17, 18, 1900 years, 2,000 years. This dates back many years, and that's when it was written down. The teachings originated even further back. So let's study something together from the Midrash. The Midrash actually relates a story that took place at the times of the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire crushed Judea, crushed the Jewish, crushed the Jewish homeland. And um, this is after the destruction of the temple, even after the revolt, the rebellion, the revolt of Bar Kokhba that got crushed. So, let me put it to you to very simply. This is in the, in, the, in the 100s, in the second century, right? 100s of the common era. There was an emperor, a Roman emperor, whose name was Hadrian. Hadrian. This guy, Hadrian, started off, when he was first emperor, he started off as a friend to the Jews. In fact, the Talmud has many stories about Hadrian's affinity to the Jewish people. However, he quickly turned against the Jewish people. Why did he turn against the Jewish people? So most understand this as being a product of the aforementioned Bar Kokhba revolt. When the Jews, or a, a segment of the Jews, 
tried to overthrow Roman control, and Rome crushed the revolt, that's when Hadrian said, no more Mr. Nice Guy, it's all out war. And Hadrian comes down as one of the worst dictators, one of the worst oppressors of the Jews in history. His decrees were horrific and barbaric. He tortured and murdered many Jews, prominent Jews, Jewish leaders, including the great Rabbi Akiva and others. The account of the 10 martyrs, many of them are killed, are murdered by the hands of the wicked Hadrian. So my point is this. My point is that Hadrian lived again in the early 100s, and he, at the, at the point of this conversation, is a, is a rabid Jew hater. Let's read this text together. I'm going to read it inside. And I want to throw a little bit of commentary on this. Okay, this is going to be, let me skip some polls. We don't need that. We did our own poll. Text number two, Midrash. So <laughs> we begin with a name that we have no idea who this is. The, the, no commentary. No one has any clue who this is. The guy's name is Imikantron. Imikantron. Again, we have no idea who this is. The commentaries struggle to try to decipher who the identity is. And the conclusion is we simply don't know. So Imikantron, it's, one second, it seems that he wasn't Jewish. It seems that he was of another faith because of what he writes. And you'll see why. Imikantron, this guy, who we don't know, write, wrote to Emperor Hadrian. He was the, Roman, the, uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire at that time. If it is circumcision that you hate, about the Jews, right? If it's circumcision that you dislike, Arabian tribes also circumcise. If it is Shabbat observance that you despise, the Kuthians similarly observe Shabbat. Clearly then, you simply hate the Jewish people. Their God will exact punishment from you. This is the message that Imikantron writes to Emperor Hadrian. The response is unnecessary. Whatever he responded, whatever he did, it's not, it's not relevant. The point is, the, the, the volley, if you will, the shot that Imikantron fires at Emperor Hadrian in this letter. Right? What's he saying? You've banned the Jews from circumcising their children and observing Shabbat, amongst other things. You've banned these, these practices. If you, really don't like, if you really don't like circumcision, then why are the Arabian tribes fine doing it? If you don't like Shabbat observance, then why are the Kuthians fine doing it. In other words, these are, these are also people within the empire and you haven't come down on them. Clearly concludes in Mechantron, it's not the circumcision and it's not the Shabbat observance. It's hatred against the Jewish people. And he says, you're going to get in trouble one day. He throws in this, this, uh, this veiled threat. Okay, so what's the point? When do you know? Or how do you know? When the, the when, when the issue is the issue, or when the issue is merely a smokescreen to another issue that's unspoken. The one of the ways to decipher this or to decode this is, do you see a double standard? Is there a double standard? In other words, are you only targeting Jewish circumcision and Jewish Shabbat observance? Then it's not about the circumcision and Shabbat observance. Then it's about the Jew. This reminds me of a powerful story that you might be aware of. In the 1920s, the president of Harvard University was a man by the name of A. Lawrence Lowell. That was his name, A. Lawrence Lowell. He was the president of Harvard. And he tried to limit the number of Jews in Harvard. Why? Because he said, Jews cheat. Jews cheat. When a, when a respected colleague pointed out to him 
that others also cheat, he famously responded, and I quote, you're changing the subject, I'm talking about Jews. You with me on this? That's what he said. Yeah, Jews cheat, but everyone cheats. You're changing the subject, I'm talking about Jews. When you encounter a double standard, a blatant, cold-blooded double standard, right? It's not about cheating, it's about the Jew cheating. It's not about circumcision, it's the Jew circumcising. It's not about Shabbat, it's the Jew observing Shabbat. When that becomes clearly identified, when that double standard becomes apparent, then you know it's not what we would call a valid criticism or a valid issue. The issue is not the one that's being propped up. That's a puppet issue. That's fake. Fake news, as they say today, right? That's not true. What's the issue? The issue is the Jew. That's the issue. So Hadrian says, no circumcision, no Shabbat. Hold on. What about these guys? <laughs> Don't change the subject. We're talking about Jews. Okay, so the issue is the Jews, right? President of Harvard says, Jews cheat. Let's limit the number of Jews. But, but others also cheat. There's no, there's no evidence that Jews cheat more percentage-wise. Don't change the subject. We're talking about Jews. When that happens, when you encounter a blatant double standard, it's reasonable, I'm going to say this carefully, it's reasonable to suggest that the issue is not the issue that's being alleged, but the issue is the Jew. The issue is essentially targeting the Jew, which we would call Jew hatred or anti-Semitism, whatever you want to call it. That's, that's the issue. So, this is the first indication. This, this, what we call a double standard, is the first indication that the issue at hand is not the one that's on the table, but it's something else. And that, again, is what we might reasonably call anti-Semitism. So is there legitimate, can there be legitimate criticism? Sure, absolutely. Well, moving it back to Israel, can there be legitimate criticism of Israel? Sure. But if the criticism maintains a double standard, in other words, if, if the other is not criticized, but only the Jewish state, then we begin to ask the question, one second, time out, time out, one second, one second, is, this, is that the issue? Or is the issue that it's a Jewish state? Like, just, just be honest here. Is that the issue? Because if that's the issue, why aren't we talking about it elsewhere? And again, this is not saying, just to be very clear here, this idea of a double standard indicating something a little bit deeper beneath the surface is not suggesting, it's not a, a, a game of uh, whataboutism. It's like, what about those guys? What about, it's not about shifting. It's not about shifting and, and, and trying to squirm out of something. That's not what this is about. This is about trying to determine to the best of one's ability, is the issue the issue or is there something else going on here? Because if this issue is the issue, as Imikantran says to Hadrian, so what about the, what about the, um, the Arabian nations? What about the Kuthians? Uh, we would ask the, 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 the head of Harvard, what about others that cheat? It's, it's not about saying, you know, it's not so bad because everyone's doing it. That's not the point. The point is simply saying, if you're only going after the Jewish version of this, then maybe it's not about the thing. Maybe it's about the Jew. Okay, Adina Malka, I see that you un unmuted. Yeah, you know, the, um, that's the problem at the UN, is that there's so many, like I think 80% of the resolutions 
are passed in the UN are against Israel. Right. And it might be legitimate crit uh, criticism, but why aren't we talking about Sudan? Why aren't we talking about Ethiopia? You know what I mean? Why aren't we talking about Ukraine? I mean, right. And, and, and I think, right, and very good points, and this is exactly where we're headed. And we have to be careful and nuanced even in this conversation because what you're saying is where I'm going with this. We have to be careful and say, it's not that we're saying that Israel should be lumped into the company of, you know, uh, of, 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 of dictatorships and, and communist countries. It's not saying, that's not where Israel wants to be. But, the, but, but really it is like this. Really the point is, when, when the criticism is so pointed in one direction, it just belies the fact, it just reveals the truth, it says something about the finger pointer. It says something about the finger pointer. Why are you only, what's with the double standard here? Right? What's with the double standard? Again, that's not excusing what the, the, anything that needs to be righted. If something needs to be righted, a valid criticism, 100%, 100%. But the question is, where's it coming from? We're trying to draw that line. So what we're going to do now is, again, this is what we just read is an ancient midrash that goes back a story to um, 1900 years. 1900 years. So this is good in, in, in Jewish literature. If you want to know what does Judaism say about it, this is some ancient Jewish wisdom on the notion of double standards and how that reveals anti-Jewish biases. Good, perfect. Now let's turn to a more modern text, a more modern source, and that is famed Soviet refusenik Natan Sharansky. So let's take, let's take a look at what Sharansky writes, he, he formulates what he calls the three D's of anti-Israel, of, of anti anti-Semitism. The three D's. Let's take a look at this. This is going to be text number three. Let me pull this up on the screen. Give me a moment here. And we're going to review this together. The 3D test. Okay, let us ask... Uh, Dr. Maxi, please read this one, text number three. I believe that we can apply a simple test. I call it the 3D test to help us distinguish legitimate criticism of Israel from anti-Semitism. The first D is the test of demonization. When the Jewish state is being demonized, when Israel's actions are blown out of all sensible proportion, when comparisons are made between Israelis and Nazis and between Palestinian refugee camps and Auschwitz, this is anti-Semitism, not legitimate criticism of Israel. The second D is the test of double standards. When criticism of Israel is applied selectively, when Israel is singled out by the United Nations for human rights abuses while the behavior of known and major abusers such as China, Iran, Cuba, and Syria is ignored when Israel's Magen David Adom, alone among the world's ambulance services, is denied admission to the International Red Cross, this is anti-Semitism. The third D is the test of delegitimization. When Israel's fundamental right to exist is denied, alone among all peoples in the world, this too is anti-Semitism. Thank you. This is very powerful and very important. The three D's of anti-Semitism, Sharansky's test. He developed this test. I mean, it's not, he formulates this, he articulates it, and it's been adopted. It's 
been adopted by, uh, by many groups, officially, unofficially, as a kind of an indicator of what anti-Semitism, where that line is between valid criticism and anti-Semitism. So when there's demonization, Israel's apartheid, Nazi-like, the Holocaust, genocide, right? When it becomes blown out of all sensible proportions, then you, there's something else going on here. Double standards. This is the one that we got from the Midrash, the one that we, from ancient Jewish text, um, is when Israel is singled out and criticized exclusively, or selectively, and, and others are, are not mentioned, then, again, it might be a valid issue, but there seems to be an anti-Semitic, some sort of angle, some sort of bias that is driving it. And, of course, the delegitima delegitimization, which is when Israel's right to exist is called into question alone amongst all nations of the world, the only nation where people even ask the question, should it exist? I don't remember anyone asking any other, any other nation, should it exist, right? When Israel is at, when the question is asked about Israel, it's a, let's put it this way, it's a, it's a red flag. Any of these three, these, alone is a, is a red flag. When all three are present simultaneously in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a criticism of Israel, when all, when you can detect this idea of demonization and double standarding and, and delegitimization in a criticism of Israel, that's a pretty good indication that this is not simply good faith criticism. It's not coming from a warm, fuzzy, and loving place. It's not coming from a place that is honorable and respectful to Jews in the Jewish state. No, 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 no. There's something far more insidious here, which is why it's taking the form of demonization and double standards and delegitimization. So what we've seen, and hopefully this is making sense, what we've seen is that, yes, one can indeed love and respect Jews and criticize Israel at the same time. It's not a contradiction. There can be a healthy form of criticism and critique. And in fact, I would argue that critique is good, healthy critique is beneficial. I mean, think about it on a personal level, right? Don't we want to be corrected? Don't we want to know when we can improve something and, and tweak it for the better? Of course. There's nothing wrong with legitimate criticism and critique of Israel. That's not anti-Semitic. But when the conversation steers into the territory of demonizing language, applying double standards, and delegitimizing the right of Israel to exist altogether, that's when all the red flags come out. That's when we have a problem. So hopefully this is explaining a little bit more the question that I asked. How do you know where, where and when to draw the line? Hopefully this has given us some practical language and tools to try to ascertain whether or not this is legitimate criticism or bordering or crossing the line into um, Jewish hate, anti-Semitic criticism. Which brings us back to Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs is writing beautifully. His, his way of writing, his, his way of communication is, is absolutely articulate. He writes the first text that we had, anti-Semitism is a virus. And in every age it seeks to legitimize itself by using, by utilizing the language, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the edifices that are held in the highest standards. So when religion is the ultimate, so then that's the problem with the Jews. When race is the ultimate, that's the problem with the Jews. When human rights is the ultimate, that's the problem with the Jews. So how do you know if it's a valid criticism or not? Okay, if the issue is the issue, 
then, then it might be a valid criticism. But when it's targeting Jews in a way that, vi- that crosses over with the three Ds that we described, then we know it's, it's, it's just using human rights as a shield, as an excuse to target Jews. And once again, it is anti-Semitic in nature. All right, does that make sense? Let's do questions and comments thus far. Yeah, jump in. Adina Malko. It, it just reminds me, you know, of the Haggadah. You know, it says that every generation, a pharaoh will rise up against it. Right. Right, yeah. Right, and, and, and it might, be, might look like a different pharaoh. It might, it might justify itself, say, I'm not a pharaoh. I just, I just um, I believe in human rights. I'm not a pharaoh. I'm, I'm, I'm championing human rights. Okay, but are you, is it really about the human rights? Or, because if it's about human rights, then let's have a broader conversation about that. Why are we targeting, right? Why are we, why are we demonizing and targeting with a double standard and delegitimizing if it's about human rights? Why are we going past those lines? Yeah. It's not about the Jews, it's about Pharaoh. I'm with you, I'm with you, right, right. It's, it's, about, it's about the Pharaoh being Pharaoh, good. All right, questions, comments. More questions, comments on this thus far? I just want to point out that your sister, Rena, brings this up to me all the time. She says, why isn't the UN speaking out against right. the partition of India? And millions, millions of people were sent across borders. Some were sent to Pakistan, some were sent back. To, and it was horrific. Right. Horrific. And to this day, they're still killing each other about this giant border dispute. Right. And nobody condemns anybody over there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The du- no the, human, uh, she brings it up all the time. The du- yeah. 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 The double standard. The double standard is a big deal. That's why I mean, that's the one that's the one that we supported, not just from Sharansky, but from the Midrash. That double standard thing is a big deal, and it's very, it's very in, in, indicative. Now, you could say, oh, I'll tell you why Israel's held to a double standard, because Israel claims that it's de- democratic, and it's, and, and it's still doing these things, so that's what we're holding to, because you hold yourself to a higher standard, so we're holding you to a higher standard. I hear that. I'm, I'm, give, I'm giving an out, almost, to the double standard. I know, what I'm, I know exactly what I'm doing, but it's something that I, that I think about often. Maybe that's why Israel is targeted. But at the same time, it, 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 there, there's something else that's driving it. When it goes past those lines, it's being driven by something else. It, it, it oftentimes, not always, but, but there are instances, and too many of them, that don't simply feel like good faith, good faith critiques. Good faith, you know, let's tweak this, let's improve this, how can we work together on this? But straight up, the Jews, you know, let's, let's target Jews. And again, we don't want to cry wolf. We don't want to cry anti-Semitism with every word that's, uh, you know, that's, that's critical of Israel. But at the same time, we have to keep our eyes open. And we have to, we have to call a spade a spade. The, the double standard thing is a big deal. In your textbooks, I don't want to get it. Look, the graphs and the polls and the additional materials, that's all stuff that you can look at on your own. I don't feel like I need to walk you through that. But I do want to point out one thing, it's in the back of your textbooks, you'll find it somewhere. It's in the back of the lesson, somewhere you'll find it. There is a conversation there about um, occupied, occupied territories. Yeah, The big buzzword is that, that Israel, the big line that everyone says is that Israel is in violation of international law you know, with the occupied territories, occupied land. 
Okay, by the way, you should know there's another side of that narrative that never gets told. There's another side of that narrative that never gets told, right? Kenny, welcome. It's great to have you here. We got to acknowledge Kenny's with us. Kenny, from the hospital. This is amazing. Kenny, I want to wish you, on behalf of all of us, a refua shlema, a full and speedy recovery. We can't wait to see you back in full health. It should be very, very soon. All right. Kenny, we love you and sending blessings and good wishes. Okay, so that's, first of all, that's very important. Now, back to, the, to this thing. So, so it's, it's almost become accepted because it's been repeated so often that Israel, for sure, is in violation of international law, right? For sure. It's, like, it's, not, even, it's not even a question. But did you know, I'd just like to offer this, did you know that Israel has another position on this? Israel says, occupy territories. The land was never officially sovereign before it was taken. In other words, it didn't belong to us. No sovereign country annexed it before it became so-called occupied. You can only occupy a nation in violation of international law if that belonged to a nation prior. And Israel's claiming that it didn't belong to any nation. Anyway, my point is like this. My point is not to get entrenched in that question. My point is just to say that when you talk about occupied territories, when you talk about land, people living in other lands, Russia, and Crimea, and I mean, there's it, it, endless examples of this, and it's in your textbook, endless examples. There's not, a, there's not a boo, there's not a this, there's not a that. Yeah, we talked about it for five minutes, Russia and Crimea. We talked about Russia for five minutes. We talk about, and, and, and meanwhile, again, not that Israel should say, look, we're not, we're not worse than the Russians. I mean, that's not, it's, we don't want to put you know, the, the bar, that's not where the bar is. But the simple point is, when there's demonization, delegitimization, and a double standard that seems to be applied consistently to Israel, you just might have something else at play, and that's what we're suggesting. That might be where the line can be drawn. Could there be another way to draw the line? Might one disagree? Sure. This is one way of understanding it and applying that distinction. Now, what I want to do is move the conversation further to address something that's very serious and what I believe to be a very painful question. Because as troubling as anti-Semitism is in general, and as troubling as anti-Semitism in the guise of Israel criticism is when it is anti-Semitic, as troubling as that is, it's understandable, it's even manageable, it's even to be expected, perhaps, when it comes from the outside. When I say outside, let me be very clear. When it doesn't come from within our own ranks. So then it's like, yeah, all right, haters gonna hate. That's it, that's the let's, we know this. As, as Adina Malka said before, in every generation, the pharaohs get up and they try, to, they try to start trouble with the Jewish people. It is what it is, what are you gonna do? So it's, it's troubling, it's disturbing, it's upsetting. But it's to be expected on some level, and we, and we deal with it, and we, we're, we're used to dealing with it. But there's a more, much more troubling trend. You might have noticed this in the last uh, war that went on not that long ago, the last Israel conflict. You might have noticed this on social media. You might have noticed this within your own neighborhood or community, or maybe even within your own family. The trend, there is a trend, and one might call it upsetting. And that is that it seems that our fellow Jews are turning against and vilifying Israel 
in troubling in the troubling ways that we described earlier. Not not we're not talking about a Jew who doesn't like a certain politician in Israel or a certain policy or wants something changed. All legitimate. Don't worry. Not coming after any of that. That's all kosher. What I'm talking about is what I said before. When Israel is not just criticized but demonized. When Israel is applied a double standard. When its entire legitimacy as a nation is called into question, Israel shouldn't exist. Israel should, should just fold and go away. That's troubling. It's even more troubling when it's spoken by, when it's coming from, posted by, articulated by, and, and, and flag-waved by a fellow Jew, someone from inside our own camps. Again, again. That someone outside the, 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 the tribe, so to speak, is going to hate, okay, we've been used to that, but someone inside the tribe, it's hurtful. It's hurtful. You know, it's kind of like uh, any criticism, right? A stranger criticizes, whatever. But a family member, oh, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts even more. So here's the deal. Jews, including young American Jews, seem to be aligning more and more with organizations that do exactly the three Ds that we spoke about before, demonize, double standard, and de delegitimize Israel. Again, this is not valid. We're not talking about valid criticism. Valid criticism is, by its very definition, valid. We're talking about straight-up vilifying Israel, denying its right to exist, etc. And the question, the burning question that's begging to be answered is, how did we end up here? How did we end up in a situation where fellow Jews are on the attack against Israel in this way? And maybe more importantly, second question is, what do we do about it? How do we get here and what can we do about it? In other words, what can we do? What can be done to address the fact that many of our own are turning against Israel in pretty intense and hateful ways, not constructively, but destructively. This is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important questions of our times. It's, I would call it an existential question. It's about the very existence of Israel and the Jewish people. And it, uh, it demands to be answered. And so I want to address it. I don't know if we're going to answer it, but I'm certainly going to address it tonight. Now, what I want to do is divide the two questions into two distinct conversations. Two distinct conversations. Question number one, conversation number one is, what motivates the Jew to turn against Israel so viciously beyond reasonable criticism? That's question number one. Question number two is, what can be done to address and help forestall this from happening in the first place? So let's start with the first question. First question first. Where is this Jew on Israel hate coming from? Not the criticism. Criticism is fine. But where's the hate coming from? the vilification, the demonization, the double standarding, the delegitimizing Israel. Where is that from within our own ranks? Where is that coming from? So to gain some perspective, I'm, I'm going to share some stuff tonight that you might consider radical, but work with me. I think it's going to be either way an eye-opening conversation. Whether you agree 100%, 90%, 50%, 20%, I think there's a lot to be learned from tonight's class. And I, and I, uh, I welcome you along this journey and, of course, comments and, and, and any Critique, any, any feedback, any disagreement, let's, 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 let's navigate this together. 
But for the perspective on the question of where is this coming from, this Jew on Israel hate, let's go back once again to our favorite story in this course, which is the story of the holiday of Purim, the story of Esther and Mordechai and Haman and Achashverosh, right? The good guys and the bad guys. And Okay, so what's going on in this story? The story is well told. Haman has a decree. We've talked about it many times already. Haman wishes to destroy the Jewish people in one fell swoop. And eventually the decree gets annulled and happy, happily ever after we live and we have a holiday called Purim and we celebrate the salvation. Beautiful. You know, there's another holiday. That's one holiday of Purim. It's a rabbinic holiday. There's another holiday that's kind of similar. That's also a rabbinic holiday. Unmute yourself if you can read my mind. I'm going to beam my thoughts to you. Which holiday am I talking about that's coming up very soon that also Hanukkah. celebrates? Hanukkah. Good. I didn't even, I didn't even have to finish the, uh, the, the question. Hanukkah is what I was thinking. Yes, Passover also celebrates, but that's a biblical holiday. And the, the other rabbinic holiday, right, post-biblical holiday is Hanukkah. So we have Hanukkah and Purim. Now my question to you is this. Keep your mics, keep, your, keep yourself unmuted because, it's, again, it's an open question. The question is, how would you characterize the distinction between Purim and Hanukkah? What are some of the differences in the story between Purim and Hanukkah? Go, jump in. Differences between Purim and Hanukkah. Hanukkah, I think more of the Jewish people were participating in... Um you know, uh, the battle and cleaning up the temple and going to find pure oil. And it seems like in poor, um, talking about Haman and um, Esther and Mordecai, there were just a few key players. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. What else? What else? Give me more. Give me more. Difference between Purim and Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah was after... The Judas Maccabee went in and basically um, put into correct order the way things worked in the temple. And he was fighting against basically other Jews who had been Hellenized. Whereas Purim is Haman and Haman is an outsider and he's trying to get a group of outsiders to decide it's a good thing to maybe not have Jewish neighbors. Good. But in the case okay. of Hanukkah, it's Hellenized Jews that Judas Maccabee rose up against. Good, okay, good, good, good. What else, what else? Good, excellent, excellent so far, two for two. Give me more, give me a little bit more. What In, in the decree of Hanukkah versus Purim, what is the difference in the decrees? Uh, a drawer or friend, I see you guys are... are... I was gonna say... Open miracles versus hidden miracles. Good, good. We have open miracles, hidden miracles. So in the story of Hanukkah, it seems like an open miracle. Purim is a hidden miracle. Good. Excellent. Good. What else? What else? Give me more about the decree. What's the difference in the decree? What was Hanukkah? What was Purim all about? What, what was the agenda of Haman versus Antiochus, the, the Syrian Greek king? What was the agenda? What was the threat? What was the Jewish threat in each case? What did Haman want to do? Destroy the Jews. Haman wanted to annihilate. The Greeks wanted to assimilate. Oh, good. Very good. Good. Right? So I think my mom is agreeing with Jerry. I think we have agreement here. Right? So Haman wanted to kill the Jew. Or in the language of Jerry, wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. 
Whereas in the story of Hanukkah, it wasn't about annihilation, it was about assimilation. So this is a famous distinction between Purim and Hanukkah. Purim was more of a physical, there was a physical threat, and Hanukkah was more of a spiritual threat, right? Which is why we celebrate it a little bit differently. On Purim, we have physical feasts and give physical gifts of food. It was all about the physical experience. On Hanukkah, we light menorahs that shed light. Okay, we also happen to eat latkes and, and jelly donuts, but that's because we can't resist because we're Jewish. We have and we to give gout. and we give gout. Okay, Shh, just don't tell anybody in this analogy, in, in this in this comparison. But whatever. But in general, Purim is more of the physical, right? The physical experience. Hanukkah is more the spiritual. And and I like the language that 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 Jerry used, which is annihilate versus assimilate. Annihilation versus assimilation. Let me break this down. Let me break this down. What was Haman's agenda? We've said it before. He wanted to wipe out, literally wipe out, destroy physically every single Jew from the face of the earth. Men, women, children, young, old, middle, and no matter who you were, if God forbid, he wanted to destroy every single Jew. That was his agenda. That was the Purim story. What was the Hanukkah story? This, the Hanukkah story is a bunch of Syrian Greeks. They were Syrians, but they were Hellenized, so they were Syrian Greeks. All right. What, what did they want? They wanted to kill the Jews? No. They had no problem with Jews. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. They had no problem with Judaism. They had no problem with Judaism. What was the problem? Well, okay, hold on. Let me, let me modify that. They had no problem with much of Judaism. But some parts, they were a little bit uh, iffy on like the old-fashioned stuff, or the very much faith-based stuff. You see, Greek philosophy is very much a rational philosophy. The Greeks love rationale. They love the body and the mind. They loved like the, the more sensible stuff. So the Greeks, they loved philosophy. They were thinkers also. They, Judaism was cool. Well, Judaism, sorry, was okay except for the uncool parts of Judaism, the stuff that didn't make a lot of sense to the Greeks. That's what they wanted to modify. So work with me on this. Work with me on this. How many Jews do you think will get behind Haman, the Haman who says, let's destroy and physically kill all the Jews? How many Jews do you think are going to be Haman supporters? How many? Zero, right? Which Jew is going to support Haman? Are you with me on this? I hope it's very clear. Again, Haman says, "Let's don't, it doesn't matter how religious observant you are, if you're Jewish, you're dead. How many Jews are supporting that? Zero. I'm giving you a double zero, just to emphasize the amount of zero we're talking about. No one is supporting Haman. No Jews are supporting Haman. But one second. What about Hanukkah? Hanukkah is when the Greeks, I'm going to paraphrase here, when the Greeks tell the Jews you guys are almost okay, but if you want to be modern, if you want to be hip, if you want to be cool, if you want to be trendy, if you want to be on point, if you want to be on message, if you want to be modern, if you want to be like normal, if you want to be normalized, then you got to put away some of the stuff and embrace some other stuff and make it work. How many Jews do you think they got there? A lot. You know why? Because it's kind of a compelling message. We love you. We don't want to kill you. We love you. We want you on the same team. You just got to tweak some things. 
You got to tweak some things that are old-fashioned, that don't make sense. Got to make it a little bit more rational, more reasonable. There's a powerful text in your books from author Dara Horn. If you've been part of the In-Town Jewish Academy book club, then you, you've read Dara Horn. She is a tremendous author. Which book did she read? Does anybody remember the title of the book that we read of hers? Who remembers? Charna, jump in. Eternal Life. Eternal Life was one of the best books I've read. Eternal Life is unbelievable. The premise of her book, Dara Horn, she's amazing. The premise of her book, she's a modern author. The premise of her book is, if you could live forever, would that be a blessing or a curse? That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to ruin anything in the book. That's the premise of the book. If you could live forever, good or not good, that's that. That's that. Dara Horn also writes about anti-Semitism. She writes about the Jewish experience. And if you're wondering, what does she write? I'm going to read it to you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm going to read this one. I got this one. Here we go. Here we go. Dara Horn, text number four. She calls it Hanukkah anti-Semitism and Purim anti-Semitism. Here we go. Buckle up. Hanukkah anti-Semitism doesn't demand dead or expel Jews, at least not at first. Instead, it demands the destruction of Jewish civilization. This process requires not dead Jews, but Jews who are willing to give up whatever specific aspect of Jewish civilization is deemed to be uncool. Of course, Judaism has always been uncool, which is why cool people find it so threatening, and why Jews who are willing to become cool are absolutely necessary to Hanukkah-style anti-Semitism success. In the days of Antiochus, he was the, Greek of, he was the king of the Syrian Greeks, the Surah Hanukkah. In the days of Antiochus, this type of anti-Semitism needed those boys who voluntarily underwent painful genital surgery to prove that Jews weren't the problem, just the barbarity of Jewish law. Are you with me in what she's saying? Guys, do I need to translate this or you got this? Yeah, you got this? I'm just checking in. Not if you got this, what she's saying. Yeah, makes sense. She's saying, what happened in Hanukkah? They said, hey, circumcision is uncool. You guys got to be cool. It's barbaric. Don't do that. So Jews were like, we want to be cool. So we're going to reverse our bris, right? Reverse the circumcision. Hanukkah-style anti-Semitism always promises Jews a kind of nobility, offering them the opportunity to cleanse themselves of whatever the people around them happen to find revolting. The Jewish traits designated as repulsive vary by country and time period, but they invariably contradict the specific values that the surrounding culture has embraced as, quote, universal. Thanks to Judaism's inherent uncoolness, there will never be a shortage of Jews willing to comply. That line is so, cut so deeply in a good way. Judaism is inherently uncool. In other words, Judaism doesn't, doesn't morph into the trend. That, that's not, Judaism is a tradition. It's not a trend. So inherently, it will be uncool on some level in whatever era is around it. And thus, she says, there will never be a shortage of Jews willing to comply. Jews who wish to be cool and wish to be accepted and wish to fit in. Are you with me on this? So when the culture, the local culture, the leading culture of the time says, hey, Jew, what's up with that? You got to change that because it's not cool. And we've got universal values and that's not a universal value. You got to change that. 
the cool-seeking Jew, the approval-seeking Jew will say, oh yeah, oh, oh, that, I disagree with that also. That's crazy. And any Jew who believes in that is simply wrong and old-fashioned. And honestly, I'm going to criticize that Jew because they're wrong. And that part of Judaism is also wrong. Aren't I so cool? Don't I fit in? Aren't we buddy-buddy? Purim anti-Semitism has no takers because Purim anti-Semitism is where Haman says, let's kill all the Jews. No Jew gets behind that. That's a no-brainer. No Jew is going to say, yeah, kill me. That doesn't make any sense. But when you promise a Jew acceptance and the cool factor, and hey, you'll be accepted, and, and Jews jump at that. Jews jump at the bait. And so Dr. Maxey said accurately before that it was Judah the Maccabee who was fighting the, the battle as the, the, the leader of the Maccabees against whom? MOT, members of the tribe. Members of the tribe who joined the ranks of Hellenists. Oh, you think it was limited then? Are you kidding me? You know what happened in the times of communism? There was a Jewish group of communists. They were more communists than the communists. They're the ones that arrested the previous Rebbe in 1927. The ones who arrested the previous Rebbe in 1927 were the Esvexia, were the Jewish communists. And you know what? One of the Jewish communists, when he was leading the previous Rebbe to his arrest, he said, Rebbe, I'll hold your bag for you. Just like my grandfather held your grandfather. His grandfather was a chassid. Uh, I'll hold your bag for you, just like my grandfather held your grandfather's bag. And the Rebbe refused. He said, your grandfather held my grandfather's bag where my grandfather wanted to go. Now you're taking me where you want to go. Stop playing chassid here. Stop playing, uh, anyway, I just, I don't mean to disrupt the flow of the, of, of the narrative with that story. But nonetheless, nonetheless. <sighs> Purim, Haman says, let's kill the Jews. No takers, no Jewish takers. The anti-Semites come out, sure, we talked about that last week. Anti-Semites come out, but the Jews don't come out. But you promise the Jew, you, you frame it as, no, 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 Jews are fine. Judaism is fine, more or less, but some things are wrong. Now you got Jews. Now you got takers. Now you got takers. That bait, the fish are biting. The fish are biting on that one. So this is what's going on in 2021. You want to know what's going on? Why the trend of, of Jewish anti-Israel vilification, not criticism, vilification. You know what's going on? Oh, the world says, you want to be normal. You want to be normalized. You want to fit in. You want to be cool. Okay, here's how it's going to work. Here's how it's going to work. All you need to do is this one little small thing. All you need to do is repeat after me. Israel is apartheid. Israel is apartheid. All you need to do is repeat after me. Israel is committing genocide. Israel is committing genocide. All you need to say is Israel has concentration camps. Israel has concentration camps. All you need to say is Israel is the worst violator of human rights ever in history. Israel's the worst. All you have to say is Israel shouldn't exist. Israel shouldn't exist. That's it? Now we're accepted? Yeah, good, we're good. All right, that's what's going on. You want to know what's going on? You want to know how our own are turning again, are, are repeating not legitimate criticisms, but over the top, violating the three Ds of valid 
Israeli criticism. You know why that's going on? One reason, perhaps. I can't say it's the whole reason, but one reason, perhaps. It's the same reason why there were Hellenists in the times of Hanukkah. It's the same reason. It's because the world has convinced us that these are normal. This is normalizing Jews and Judaism, and all you need to do is be on board, and now you're normal. Because otherwise, ugh, ugh, Jew, oof, ugh, ah, you're not criticizing, ugh, you're not vilifying, ooh, not normalized. And all we want to do is fit in. It's normal, it's normal, it's perfectly human and normal to want to fit in. But Dara Horn's got it, she's got it, she's brilliant, she's got it, she's got it. Judaism is inherently uncool. <laughs> just give up. Just give up. Judaism is uncool. It's a tradition. It goes back 3,333 years. 30, yeah, 33 and a half years. It's not trendy. It says it's not trendy. It's not trendy. You want to be trendy? Uh, be trendy. It's not trendy. You want to criticize Israel? No problem. You don't like the, you don't like the prime minister? Have at it. You don't like the policy? Advocate to change the policy. You want to say that Israel shouldn't exist? You want to say that Israel is an apartheid state? Israel commits genocide? Israel violates international law? You want to say that? Research it. Before you pop it in, because everyone else is saying it, research it. Research it. Step back from the 3Ds. I told you that I'm going to say that, that tonight's going to be a little, bit, a little bit rough. I told you that. I told you that. There's no way not to have an honest conversation when talking about this topic. What, we should talk about the topic? What else are you going to say about the topic if, if we don't get, get real on this topic? This is a real topic, and it's a real painful topic. It's painful and it's personal. Without getting into details, there are people that I know, individuals that went to our Hebrew school, that went through our camps, that went to, and that are crossing lines. And it's painful. And you wonder, what happened? What, what's going on? When the world says something, it's hard to resist. The world says, you want to be normal, you have to criticize like this. So it's hard to resist. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm, putting, I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging the challenge. All right, I'm, I'm going to stop talking for a few minutes. Let me check in. Does this make sense? Yes? Yes? Ish? Yes? Okay. I got two thumbs up. That's all I need. Okay. Oh, three thumbs up. Okay, good. All right, questions, comments. Again, I just want to be very clear. I know I'm repeating myself, but I have to be clear. If legitimate criticism is legitimate, there's not a question. When it becomes demonizing, double standarding, I know I'm making it into an ing, when it becomes delegitimizing, that's when we need to ask the question, what's going on? That's it. And when it comes from Jewish ranks, one way of looking at it is saying the Jew is feeling the pressure of society to adopt that stance. That's very unfortunate. Okay. Questions, comments, rebuttals? If I'm, listen, if I'm dishing it out, I can definitely take it. Right? I'm, I'm, ready, I'm, ready, to, I'm ready to receive. I'm ready to receive. Okay, all right, okay. Yeah, Adina Malko, jump in. Yeah. Um, a Jew who converts uh, like to Christianity, they see themselves as a fulfilled Jew. 
that's, I, I feel that's a little bit of a different conversation. This one, we're focusing specifically on, on the idea of anti-Semitism vis-a-vis Israel. Um, I don't think it's a contradiction. First of all, as, 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 uh, as I've said many times in classes, once a Jew, always a Jew. So that's it. It's like, uh, yeah, listen. I'm trying to think of a good analogy. Um, Manus Freeman has one. He says a Jew that converts to Christianity is just a Jew practicing a new and different religion. They're right. Still a, Jew. still a Jew, exactly. Right, still a Jew. So uh, to me, that's like, you know, let's call it what it is. And call, a person can call it whatever they want, but still Jewish, not, uh, you know, can't, can't, can't swap in the, uh, the, can't turn in the Jew card. It's not, it's not possible. At least that's what we believe. Well, so, I meant as far as um, assimilation. Assimilation, I mean, look, I mean, the challenge. Yeah. If I don't practice Judaism. Right. And, and I'm saved. Right. Okay, and, so look. Def- definitely a challenge. I don't think it's exclusive to that. I think the challenge is the challenge is all around us. The challenge is we live in a country that is secular, that is Christian, that is all of the above. There's atheists. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff out there. And it's hard. It's hard to, to, to stay focused. And again, this is not a criticism. It's just saying in response to the question, to my question, right? Where is this coming from? One answer, as Daryl Horn, I, I believe, eloquently points out, is one, one perspective on this is it's Hanukkah anti-Semitism, or it's the challenge of Hanukkah. The challenge of Hanukkah is how to stand up and be uncool when the, the, the Greeks tell you, hey, just Hellenize and be normal. It's hard. So in some, it manifests itself as anti-Israel criticism. Some it manifests as assimilation. Some it manifests itself in other ways. But I don't, I don't know that there's a, you know, I don't know that I have anything to say specifically about, you know, about your question. It's, it's more of a, a general challenge that, we, that, we're, that we're addressing. Now, if the question is, so what to do about it, that's really the second, that's really the, the second part of the second question that I asked earlier. I asked two questions. I said, number one, why does it seem like more and more Jews are getting caught up in this, you know, anti, strong, vilifying anti-Israel movement? Number one, like BDS and other things that are literally like delegitimizing Israel, like literally by its by its very definition, it's about you know undercutting on the academic level, just everything. So so that's number one. And the second question is, what do we do about it? So that's where I'm up to now. So maybe maybe that's where that that, that would be helpful in this conversation. Is okay. So what do we do about it? So I, I would like to offer this. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that could be said about what to do about it. So and, and this is where we are. We live in a culture that. You know, is now some are vilifying Israel. Some of our own rank is now also vilifying Israel. So what do we do? So what do we do? Throw our hands up in the, in the air and say, oh, that's it. We're doomed or this is a problem. Would it? So unfortunately, there's no easy fix. I don't believe that there's an easy fix here. There's no button to press. Um, there's no button to press uh, that magically transforms a Jew who believes or who has demonized and delegitimized Israel that suddenly now... Um, you know, will will come around. Somebody who calls a Jew who calls for the dismantling of, of Israel as a Jewish state. Someone who says Judaism, Israel shouldn't exist. I don't think there's a button that you press that changes that. I don't think there's an easy fix. But there's a longer term strategy that I think we must consider if we wish for the truth and for a viable true a viable future for Israel to exist. And and, and my suggestion, my uh, what I would like to offer today, is simply one word. Education, or more precisely, re-education. Um, you see, for 70 years, and, and 
those of you here, I'm just taking a quick, quick comment, parenthetical comment. Those of you that joined me last Wednesday night for our Torah studies class will be familiar with some of what I'm about to say, but I'm going to repeat it again. First of all, many of you didn't, would not attend the Wednesday night class and have no idea what I'm talking about. Number two, even if you were at the Wednesday night class, you'll see how this connects, I believe, very profoundly in today's discussion, and it's a very important piece of the puzzle right now. So let me, that's the parentheses and the intro. Let's jump into what, what I'm trying to say. The long-term solution or the long-term strategy for, um, for stemming this problem of this challenge of Jews joining uh, these ranks of, of vilifying Israel, it's education and it's really re-education. And it begins with a very clear understanding of what Israel is and what Israel isn't. And for 70 years, we've been repeating the same lines about Israel and about Israel's legitimacy. We've been saying that international consensus is behind Israel's founding as a Jewish state in 1948. We've, we've shouted from the rooftops that Israel is so necessary for the safety and security of the Jewish people. Remember the Holocaust, no place to go. Israel is necessary for the safety and security of the Jewish people. And we proclaimed for all to hear that Israel is the historical home of the Jewish people. Just dig. Just dig and you'll see, you'll find Jewish artifacts. And we've been saying this for 70 years, right? International consensus, safety and security, historical home of the Jewish people, these are the big three ideas. And not only that, these are the three ideas that are, that are enshrined in Israel's own Declaration of Independence. Read the Declaration. I'm not going to read it now. Read it. Google it. Read Israel's Declaration of Independence, and you'll see these three themes. International consensus, the, nece the necessity for safety and security, and the idea that Israel is the long-standing home of the Jewish people. These are the big ideas. And they serve as the arguments for the legitimacy of Israel. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, especially for some of you, twice in one week. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, twice in seven days. But I, the arguments, these three arguments, I know they're in the Declaration of Independence of Israel. They're not that compelling. They're just not that compelling. International consensus. Serious? You're kidding me? International consensus? That's the foundation of Israel? Since when is, people will say, since when is colonialism okay? Just because people agree? Oh, because in 1948, a bunch of nations agreed that colonialism is okay. So we should, we should in 2021, that's okay? You can't, you sugar? You crazy? Imperialism, colonialism, that's okay because someone said it's okay? It's not okay. Yeah? So much for... So much for international consensus. What happens when that consensus falls apart? Whoops. Yeah. And number two, safety and security. Come on. Safety and security. So you're going to post up in someone else's backyard for safety and security? That's kosher? Yeah. Post, steal someone's land, post up somewhere where someone's living, kick him out and say, I need to be safe and secure. Sorry. And, and, and what about the guy you just kicked out? Oh, I don't care about you. I need my safety and security. That's a compelling reason. That's a compelling reason. That's how you're going to get <laughs> currency for Israel? Yeah, safety and security. Thank you very much. 
and historical homeland of the Jewish people. Oh, Crimea River. Are you kidding me? Historical homeland. You know how many other people have been in Israel in the past? Yeah, and where did the Jews get it from? The Canaanites, historical homeland. Go back to the Canaanites. Yeah, are you kidding me? All three fail. Critical analysis. By the way, I'm not saying actually that these are like totally wrong. Well, I'm just pointing out what the, Israel, what the critic of Israel will say about all three of these. Consensus, international consensus, Baba Mises, colonialism. Um, safety and security, not in someone's backyard. And historical homeland, yeah, check the history books. Your Bible says you got it from somewhere else. So, so then what's going on? So then, then what's Israel doing there? See what I mean? These arguments are not that compelling. They have a lot of holes in them. And you know why? Because they're not the whole truth. Whoops. They're not the truth. It's like a book that I was reading recently by a good friend, Tom Keating, who happens to be here with us tonight. He wrote a book called Saturday School. I read it from cover to cover on a flight on Friday morning, this past Friday morning. And uh, Tom writes about the law, essentially, in Decatur, Georgia, that school, public school, had, takes place on Saturdays. The question's why. Everyone offers reasons. But as Tom does in his book, he pokes holes in all the reasons. And the conclusion, you'll have to, you have to read the book to find the conclusion. Tom, I don't know, should I give it away? Should I give it away? I don't know if I should give away the plot. Is that kosher? You can give it away, although I like to have people read it to get their own thoughts. All right, perfect. Tom's conclusion is, yeah, Saturday school, very convenient way. Policy, school, right? Po school policy way to just push away the Jews from settling in Decatur and ruining the... Uh, the uh, Jew-free space. That's a, that's a very kitzer. Kitzer means a, a very short summary. Now read the book. It's like Hillel. Remember Hillel said, love your fellows yourself, the rest is common to you. Now go study and learn. Boom. Now go read the book. It's on Amazon. Check it out. Saturday school. Here's my point. The reason why these, why these rationales have holes in them is because they're not the whole truth. Sure, there was international consensus. Sure, there was a holocaust. Sure, there was a King David and a temple and archaeological finds in Israel. Sure, sure, sure. But you know what? That's not the whole truth. That's not why Israel is a Jewish land. Israel's a Jewish land because of one thing only. Because, because God gave the land to us. Read the Bible. The Bible says God gave it to Abraham. And he gave it to Isaac. And he gave it to Jacob. And he said it belongs to the Jewish people. That's it. That's it. And now you're thinking, oh my God, we're going to quote the Bible? Are we crazy? How's that going to be cool? Remember what Dara Horn said? Don't try to be cool. Just be authentic. Judaism doesn't need to be cool. It's not cool. You notice how many, how few Jews there are? You think if, the, if this was really cool, it would be a lot more Jews. It's not about cool. What's popular isn't right. What's right isn't popular. It's not about popularity. It's not a contest. It's not a contest. How many followers you can have on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. It's not, it's not the question of popularity and coolness. To the Bible says 
the Bible that is allegedly believed believed in by billions, billions with a B, of people on planet Earth, Jews, Christians, Muslims. The Bible says black and white. God says to Abraham, I'm giving it to you and your descendants forever. Forever is a strong word, especially when God says it. God says to Isaac, the promise to Abraham is through you, not Ishmael. God says to Jacob, the promise is to you, not Esau. Jacob's sons are the 12 tribes, the founders of the Jewish people. This is what we're talking about here. It's black and white. That's why Israel is a Jewish land. Not because of 1948, not because of the Holocaust, and not because of archaeological finds and digs. That's not why Israel is a Jewish land. All of those are the what I would call the more politically correct way of saying it's a Jewish land. So we shine it up in a, a nice veneer. Again, I'm going to use that word the second time in today's class. Shine it in a veneer and say, oh, don't you, don't you agree, isn't it? And, and for some it makes sense. In some eras it makes sense. But in 2021, not so compelling. So here's my point. Let's, let me make sure we maintain laser focus. I, for myself, I prepare these classes with laser focus to draw you through a narrative step by step. And I hope that I don't lose you with this focus. I asked the question, why is it that so many Jews of our own, our own MOT, members of the tribe, are joining not valid criticism of Israel, which is valid, no problem. I also have my, my own beef with, with some things that are going. But why is it that Jews are joining movements that are literally, their, their statements, their, their, their canons are about tearing down Israel as a Jewish state? How is that possible? So I said, number one, because Jews like to fit in. It's not cool to be uncool. And, and but how do we fix this? It begins by not hiding the truth. You want to hide the truth, and then you wonder why people don't know the truth and why they're, I mean, you can't. Number one, the truth has to come out. We have to teach the truth. Whether or not someone's going to agree to it wholeheartedly, you got you to tell the truth. You got to, especially to our kids. I'm going to hide the truth from our kids. We say to our kids that Israel's only legitimacy is because of 1948, because of safety and security, then they're going to say, well, hold on one second. I don't agree with the decision in 1948. Imperialism, colonialism, I don't believe. I think they were wrong in 1948. Uh-oh. Whoops. Yeah, is, Israel wasn't, that, that area was not, did not belong to Britain to give away. Yeah, or, or, or that, yeah, exactly. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want the specifics of the argument, right, but... Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. Whoops. Safety and security. I think Jews are safe. I think they're more danger, more, more a threat amongst the billions, uh, millions of Arabs, hundreds of millions of Arabs. I don't think they... So, whoops, there goes that argument. And, 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 and the land... I don't want to go through this again. Anyway, my point is very simple. You, you, you put up, you put up not truth, and it gets ripped down, and then what are you left with? What are you left with? Put up the truth... Not everyone's going to, listen, the truth is, but at least put it out there for yourself, for your kids. Get, we, it's not you. It's, it's a we thing. It's not, it's not a you thing. It's a we thing. We have to teach our kids. have to give them a strong Jewish education. have to teach them Torah. have to teach them about God and about the Torah and about the Bible and about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And not just as Baba Mises and stories and fantasies and fairy tales about uh, Noah's Ark and Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and tents, but real vibrant, living Jewish education, and that Israel is the promised land, and Israel is a Jewish land. So I'll tell you a story. Decades ago, 
one of the presidents of Israel's name was a man named, um, his name was, hold on, why am I forgetting his first name? Zalman. Lubavitch name to boot, Chabad name. Zalman Shazar. And Zalman Shazar, Mr. Shazar, wrote a letter to the Rebbe criticizing the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, why is it that when the Rebbe speaks about Israel, he always refers to it as the land of Israel and not the state of Israel? Oof, shots fired. Shots fired. He was paying attention a little too much. The Rebbe never referred to it as the state of Israel, but as the land of Israel. Can you guess what the Rebbe answered? You know what the state of Israel means? 1948. You know what the land of Israel means? 3,000 years, 3,700 years. Which is stronger? Yeah? <laughs> Go figure. You want to put all your eggs in that basket? Shazar could not fathom a time. I don't believe he could fathom a time when that argument of 1948 would be as hollow as it is today to a young American Jew. I'm using my words. I'm measuring them very carefully. The argument of the UN resolution in 1948 or the Balfour Declaration or the British Mandate for the Establishment of Palestine, all of that has never rung as hollow as it has to the 2021 American teenager, teenage Jew. Doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. Now you might say, well, the Bible also may not mean a thing. Okay, so we have to work on that. I told you it's not a button. It's a long-term strategy of education and re-education. It's a long-term strategy. But at least we have to present the truth. At least we have to present that truth. When we confidently believe, when we believe that Israel is the Jewish homeland promised by God and that we are not thieves, we are not colonialists, and when we teach this to our children, we have a much better shot at turning the tide of perspective about Israel. Not that suddenly Israel becomes perfect and immune to criticism. No, Israel can do wrong and Israel can be criticized. But the legitimacy, and we're very clear, the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish land, not simply a Jewish state, that is addressed when we go to the core of the background. And this will, please God, help curtail anti-Israel vilification at least from within our own ranks, or at least reduce that number. One final point. One final point. Just like was the case with anti-Semitism last week, we spoke about there's a deeper soul of anti-Semitism, the ditch and the mound, and we spoke about that at length. There's also a deeper sentiment behind anti-Israel vilification. I'm going to say it to you quick, 45 seconds. The soul of anti-Israel vilification is the notion that Judaism is a spiritual path that doesn't require a land. Why do you need a land? Just be spiritual, have Torah, we'll travel. You don't need a land. And the response to that, again, on a deeper soul level is, Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is not a path of nirvana and spiritual connection to God. It is that, but that's not all that it is. Judaism is primarily a guide for how to live our lives in a healthy and productive manner, which means that Judaism is about guiding life on earth. And that's why Israel is so important. That's why a piece of earth, a piece of land is so important. Otherwise, 
it would be a claim, and it might even be a Jewish claim to say, that why do Jews need a physical piece of the earth? You have Torah, that's all you need. Torah requires a land. Torah requires a physical space. Now you could say, well, you could do it anywhere, and that's true. But the fact that Jews and Judaism have Israel, the fact that God gave it to Israel, is an indication that indeed the spiritual, the spirituality of Judaism is meant to permeate the, the very physical earth. That's the deeper significance of what, when we say the holy land, it's making the land holy. And my friends, this takes us to the end of the lesson. So today we learned a lot about Israel. And we learned a lot about how anti-Semitism can manifest itself vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish homeland. We saw that Jewish hate can take the form of anti-Israel hate and can be considered the third wave of anti-Semitism. We also saw that not all criticism of Israel is inherently evil. We learned about the three Ds that can help us distinguish between what's valid criticism and what's hateful vilification. We discovered that anti-Israel hate in Jewish circles may be motivated by the desire to fit in and be relevant. We affirm that our connection to Israel is not due to incidental factors on the ground, but rather due to God's promise that it is our eternal homeland. We discussed how sharing and teaching and reteaching this idea can change the entire nature of the narrative. And finally, we emphasized that Israel represents Judaism's call to infuse the world, the physical world, with godly light and divine values. My friends, I want to conclude with this. Let us always remember who we are and what we're about. And when we walk with confidence, the world will respect us. May peace always prevail. May God continue to watch over the land of Israel as he promises in the book of Deuteronomy that the eyes of God are always upon the land of Israel from beginning of the year to the end of the year. May there only be peace and happiness. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight. A very quick announcement about next week's class. Thank you. Very quick announcement about next week's class. Next week is our fourth and final session. This is a four-week course. Many of our courses are six weeks. This one is four. It's called Change of Heart. We've saved, in my opinion, the best for last. What should we do on a practical level when we encounter anti-Semitism? How, how, how ought we respond to the affront, to the chutzpah? Should we protest? Should we cancel them? Should we perhaps begin a dialogue with the enemy, which seems maybe wrong? Join me next week for our grand finale as we look at some incredible do's and don'ts, practical and incredible do's and don'ts for dealing with anti-Semitism on the ground. You don't want to miss this, and I believe you will be shocked by some of the messaging of next week's class, shocked in a good way. Join me next week, same bad time, same bad channel. I thank you. I thank you dearly for joining me tonight and for being part of the conversation. And I welcome questions and comments now. A very quick, before we open the mics, a very quick, uh, and you can open your own mic, but very quick points of, of announcement. Number one, we are beginning our new Rosh Chodesh Society course next Monday night called Well Connected. This is a course for women, by women, that speaks about how to ground 
Jewish spirituality in practical ritual. You don't want to miss this. Gorgeous conversations. It's stunning in its, in its import and its impact. Monday nights, seven months, beginning this Monday night, November 15th, 8 p.m. That's number one. Number two, we're starting up our Jewish book club once again. Check out the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash book to join the book club and get information about the titles and the dates. Next, we are planning a, we're not planning, we have a Hanukkah jewelry workshop set for Saturday night, November 20th. Join us in person or online for this incredible opportunity. We also have Mitzvah Day, Meals of Love. Join us to cook meals for those that do not have homes. Individuals in Rebecca's tent, which is a local women's shelter, run in conjunction with synagogue, with Congregation Sheriff Israel. We are going to be cooking warm and loving meals for those individuals that need it so dearly and desperately. Join me to help cook and prepare those meals. Um, and that date on that is November 21st. Stay tuned for an announcement about some more stuff that's upcoming. And also join us for the Kabbalah of the Matrix, which is coming up in December. We have so much more. I just booked, we just confirmed Rabbi Label Wolf, the Australian mystic, for a meditation session. We have so much coming up. It's going to just knock your socks off. Join us. Take a look. And of course, if you can, help sponsor the events and the programs. That always goes a long way in helping bring it to our community. Okay. Open mic, questions, comments, please jump in. Question. Yes. Isn't it possible that people are afraid to cite God because they're actually afraid of being physically attacked? Could be, sure. I would say, yeah, I... I I would say pick your spots, right? You definitely want to make sure that you got the, the right audience for that. And I don't know that, um, you know, your, your mileage may vary with that. I, this is more of an internal conversation. This is more of a question about Jewish yeah. education. How the question on the table is our kids. Yeah. And I, I'm offering the answer is let's teach our kids authentically. That means we have to believe in it ourselves. That means we have to present it authentically. That requires a little more work. The other stuff is a little easier. So this requires more work. What happens when the, the violent anti-Semite hears us quoting God, what they're going to do, that's, that's, a, that's a good point and that's a good question. And that has to be obviously taken into consideration and, 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 and looked at. But this is about our education of our own. This is about our kids. This is about our kids. And there's no... There's, it's not, this is not a simple answer. Yeah. I just wanted to bring up the point that it might not always be because someone's trying to fit in. Right. Oh, that point of it. True. Yeah. True. Because it might be that someone is actually afraid of being attacked. Right. They don't want to bring up the fact, oh, yeah, I'm different. I'm a Jew and God gave me. Right. Yeah. But that's, that would be a temporary circumstance, but not a long-term position so where somebody is posting. Person, right. The guy has a gun. But again, that's how long is that going to last? I mean, you could have some, yeah. Well, it could last for the rest of the person's life, unfortunately. Okay, I mean, that's an extreme situation. I'm just trying to bring up a point. I'm I'm with you, I'm with you, yeah, okay. No, that that might be that motivation that somebody's actually physically afraid. Right, yeah. Not not just wanting to fit in. Right. That's the only thing I wanted to say. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Okay, good. I don't want to give it any more, any more of a... Of a bad, what do you call it? An right. ayin harad, and I have right. to translate that. Of course, of course. All right, Kenny, jump out. Oh, Kenny, did you want to say something? I saw you unmute before. 
I think I caught you mid-bite. No worries if not. My pleasure. Kenny, I'm wishing you good health. That's the main thing. The discussions are good also, but the main thing is good health. And the merit of the Torah learning that we did tonight, you should have blessings, all the blessings that you need for good health, complete recovery, and back to 110%. Not 100%, 110%. That's the blessing. Better than ever. Um, good, good, good. Questions, comments? Jump in, jump in. Well, it just reminds me of the um, the Jews in Germany who became, you know, Reformed Jews and very secular, and they thought, well, if I, you know, they served Germany in the First World War, and they thought all this was going to save them. Right. And this is right. Yeah, yeah, it's a theme we spoke about last time. It's, it's that, yeah, it's a similar, similar, uh, similar dynamic where, <clears throat> yeah. I, I mentioned this before. I'm sure. I think I mentioned this very recently. Where there were Jews in Germany who wished to take out the blessing in the Amidah for the redemption, for return of the the temple for Mashiach, and they said because because Germany is so good. I mean, little did they know a few decades later, you know, the Holocaust. So it just, it just reminds us to, I don't know. I don't know what it reminds us. The dangers of trying to fit in, the futility of trying to fit in, all of the above. I don't know. It's, it's the futility. The futility. It's, if it's, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Tom. Uh, given the last reference, I think it's appropriate to uh, mention that tonight is the anniversary of Kristallnacht. Thank you for mentioning that. I did not know that. Wow. That's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, but whatever happened to um, uh, camping, you know, the Orthodox singer uh, that was so popular, the young guy? Which guy? Matisyahu. Oh, Matisyahu? Matisse, yeah. Yeah? He's still, yeah, he's still doing he his was, thing. Yeah, I mean, he, he was um, orthodox in his garb. And oh, yeah, yeah. He was Hasidic. What do you mean? He was Chabad. Yeah, he's I sort mean, of Chabad. Right, yeah, he was right there. He was right out there. Because, yeah. You know. He's, listen, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know him personally. He's on his journey. I do know that he's very close with my good friend, Rabbi Lipsker, over at Chabad at Emory University. And he just did a concert a few weeks ago. And Rabbi Lipsker went backstage and fabrained with him. So I know that, that he, he's still connected in his own way. And he's, like everyone else, he's on a journey. And so, you know, it's, we, can't, we can't always judge by, ex, let's put it this way, we can't always judge by external appearances what's going on. And, you know, things, things can fluctuate and, you know, things can change. But, uh, yeah, Matisio is still calling Chabad rabbis and, and, and having good connections before and after concerts. That's still happening as of two, three weeks ago. Um, yeah. All right, good, good, good. All right, great seeing everybody tonight. It's great to explore this topic together. I hope it resonated on some level. I hope uh, at least some of the points resonated. And please, God, we should only have blessings, health, and peace, and love, and happiness, and only good things. All right, and happy birthday, mom. 
That's also, right? Don't forget, happy birthday, mom. It's great to see you. It's great to learn together. It's great to speak multiple times in one day. So uh, happy birthday. May all your heart's desires be fulfilled for the good. And you should continue to have nachas from us and uh, from the whole mishpacha. Happy birthday, Ray. All right. Thank you so much. Pleasure. All right. We'll see you guys. Have a good night, Laila Tov. Take care, everybody.